Assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. Now, as it starts to get colder up here in the Northern Hemisphere as we move into the fall and into the winter, some of you uh, that might be laughing at us that have data centers, so those of you who don't have data centers, laughing at us who do have data centers for them being the loud, noisy, space-heating monstrosities that they are, uh, you might start to feel a little bit... um, silly right about now as it starts to get colder out because while you are busy cranking up your thermostat to try to stay warm and cranking that heat uh, we us with data centers at our house all we have to do is curl up right next to our space heaters and we will be nice and comfy and cozy so while it might be a detriment in the summertime when it may or may not happen to be upstairs where heat rises, thus making your upstairs a um, sauna, uh, to put it lightly, uh, come the winter time, it actually is quite pleasant up there, and you actually are potentially even saving yourself in some heating uh, because your data center is doing that for you. Um, So that's just one thing that I thought I would bring up here. Uh, But let's get started with our trivia question for the week. So, what type of cyber attack involves flooding a network or website with excessive traffic to disrupt its normal functioning? So, if you've listened to many of our episodes, um, you should probably be fairly familiar with what we are talking about here, and hopefully this should be fairly easy for some of you. Um, But regardless, that is the trivia question for the week. Now, this week's cybersecurity tip isn't really much of a tip um, because, well, I guess it kind of is, but there was a um, data breach that happened within the past week that was... um, fairly significant, so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about in this week's cybersecurity tip. So as I kind of alluded to there, uh, really the tip for this week, I guess, is that your personal online security doesn't just affect you in all cases. So yeah, there's some cases where it might just only affect you, but there are other instances where it's not just you that's affected. Um, One immediate example that I can think of off the top of my head um, is if you potentially share a bank account with someone, maybe you're married or something and you share a bank account, or you have maybe like a child or something that's on attached to your bank account for some reason. Regardless, um, if you have some poor security and someone gets in through one of the subsidiary accounts, they could potentially drain um, your bank account, which obviously wouldn't be good. Um, Another instance is if you have any kind of, you know, similar to the bank account situation, um, maybe like a 
either well i guess credit cards a little bit different um but maybe like a phone plan or something and someone's able to hack in through a subsidiary account or through your account and then drain money that way i mean there's a couple different ways where this can happen but this one specifically is potentially i guess depending on how you look at it potentially even worse um so basically what happened was 23andme which if you're not familiar with 23andme they're a a a service which basically allows you to take a dna test and then they can do a based on that dna test they can do all sorts of things um from tell you like where your ancestry's from you know who your relatives are you can find find people i mean there's a bunch of stuff you can do it by you know basically giving them your entire genetic information um so obviously there have been people that in the uh, security conscious uh, areas of the world that have basically been warning people not to use these because you're essentially giving your entire genetic information to who knows who to do with who knows what. And some people would say this was inevitable, um, but there was a some sort of data breach that happened, and currently uh, customers of 23andMe are having their genetic information being sold on the dark web now. So, yeah, not a very good situation. And the reason why this is a prime example of your security doesn't necessarily just affect you is because even if you never gave any of your information to 23andMe, you never created an account, you never took any of their DNA tests, anything like that, if you have any relatives that did, well, congratulations, your genetic information is now in the hands of who knows who because of this data breach. So, yeah. Um, because in case you, you weren't familiar, um, if you are the descendant of someone, um, it's, it's pretty genetic wise. I mean, I think you can see where I'm going here. Um, so you don't even have to be the person that got hacked yet. You still in a way could have been hacked because, um, if we go into this article here, um, some of the information that was exposed included full names, usernames, profile photos, sex, date of birth, genetic ancestry results, and geographic location. Um, and also, a compromised accounts that had opted into the platform's DNA relative feature um, that allows them to find gene- genetic relatives and connect with them. Yeah, so that's basically telling that, you know, direct link to you, essentially. So if you have any relatives um, or know anyone close to you like that that use this service, there is a good chance that somewhere on the dark web, some attacker has all of your data, uh, genetic data, so e- even worse. Um, now, the way that this data was apparently exposed um 
uh, according to, I guess, the, the 23andMe, uh, this article is from Bleeping Computer, but the, I guess the 23andMe spokesperson said that um, the preliminary results of this investigation, investigation suggest that the login credentials used in these access attempts may have been gathered by a threat actor from data leak during incidents involving other online platforms where users have recycled login credentials. So, yeah, here's another uh, cybersecurity tip for you. Don't reuse passwords because um, just because there was a data leak on one account and you changed your password there, if you use the same password there on other accounts, well, now your other accounts are potentially compromised too, and based on this article and from what this spokesperson said, that seems to be exactly what happened. Um, so yeah, don't reuse passwords. Um, that's probably one of the basic, one of the most basic ways that you can improve um, your cybersecurity awareness and prevent yourself from being hacked is to not have the same passwords on multiple sites. Um, the easiest way to do this, because passwords are hard to remember, especially if you're creating strong ones, which you should, um, is to use some kind of password manager. Um, there are plenty of solutions out there um, from cloud-hosted ones that you can access from anywhere to self-hosted ones. There's plenty of um, good ones out there. Um, so having reusing passwords or having weak passwords is really not an excuse anymore um, because of how readily available password good password managers are. Um, but yeah, so the accounts got compromised due to recycled recycled login credentials. So that's um, kind of a, a big miss misstep on those people's parts. Now, I don't want to necessarily make light of a serious serious topic such as this but the um the threat actor that is currently i guess selling the data on the dark web is currently offering discounts for people that buy in bulk so i guess they're just trying to do people a solid um but yeah so hopefully you or relatives um don't use <laughs> or didn't use 23andMe or any of the other um, data, or not data, um, genetic testing sites or companies or whatever, um, because in the event that they get compromised, um, you also get compromised even if you had nothing to do with them. So let this, I guess, be a wake-up call to anyone out there that was potentially considering using one of these services, uh, probably don't uh, because you have no idea what they're going to do with your data, um, specifically your genetic information, which is um, pretty... <laughs> pretty important i mean that i i would say that's kind of close up there with like you know other other personally identifiable information like social security number licenses bank account information that kind of stuff um so 
Yeah. Um, I guess on the one hand, if this really was just the fact that people were recycling login credentials, um, in that case, that could be easily prevented. But at the same time, uh, I mean, we've seen companies all over the place get their their databases hacked and the the data leaked, regardless of if users had were getting hacked through through bad passwords or something like that. So it's really something that's out of your control. But I would say if you really are keen on doing like a some kind of DNA analysis on your on your genome to find something like like just go to a an actual clinic or something with like real medical professionals rather than through some third party service uh but that's that's just my two cents um so yeah this is a a pretty bad um data breach um so yeah be be mindful of the types of services and things that you get yourself into because as seen here if you get compromised it might just not be you that gets compromised you might be potentially compromising people around you as well um, and i'm assuming that they would not be very happy with you if by proxy um, they essentially got hacked because of something you decided to do um, but yeah so 23andme that is a big yikes for sure so that is your cybersecurity tip of the week um be mindful of your your own security because in some cases it's not just you that's on the line it's your friends and family potentially also so yeah oh boy i mean when it the the thing of it is right like i mean i i mean personally i never had any desire to do any kind of genetic test like this, partly because I, I thought it, I always just thought it kind of weird of I am giving my entire genetic information to who knows who to do with who knows what. Um, I guess on, on part of me, you know, that, that inner I want to make a conspiracy theory type thing was like, I don't want like, you know, my whole genome out there that I could just, you know, people could make clones of me or something. Um, obviously, I don't think that would happen for for many reasons, um, partly being ethical reasons. Um, but at the, I guess, I, I mean, I, I don't actually think, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that I know of uh, blood-related that has done any of these tests, per se, um, but if any of them did, well, then I guess my, my hopes and dreams of not signing up for one of these tests because I'm scared of my genome being out there is, is gone anyway. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of, kind of crazy that, you know, people were just willing to give this massive amount of personal information out to some company, um, I mean, but again, that that's coming from me with a biased, you know, cybersecurity background opinion where you basically don't want to give any personal information out to anyone, uh, regardless of reason. Um, like I know for me, like I, I don't generally like having to give out, you know, license or passport or 
social security information or anything like that, even for like bank account related stuff where it's like actually justifiable or you need to, you know, verify who you are. Um, even in those cases, I don't like giving out that kind of information. Um, and those are to like, you know, institutions where, you know, they would in theory anyway, have really good, strong security, but some random, you know, genetic testing company, um, taking all your data like that, I I can't fathom of necessarily why. I mean, I guess on the one hand, right, it would be cool to kind of know all that information, you know, who you, like where you came from, what percentage ethnicity of something are you, that kind of stuff, who you're related to. Um, and it can definitely be really cool, um, you know, to kind of see your, your family lineage and stuff and maybe see if you're related to any like famous people from the past um and i guess that's kind of cool but i don't know if it's necessarily worth giving your entire genetic information to some company um but you know people are gonna do what they're gonna do right so there's there's nothing that we can really do about it um really the i guess the only thing that we can do is help inform people of what they're getting themselves into you know, when they would sign up for a service like this. I, I guess that's really the only thing that we can do um, because at the end of the day, like I said, people are going to do what they're going to do. Um, but I guess with that, with that depressingness out of the way, I guess we can get into a little more um, upbeat stuff with what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So I talked, well, I guess last week was pretty much... I didn't really do a whole lot as far as programming, but this week I did get, because, you know, I was focused on all that VLAN fun stuff, and that pretty much took all my time. Uh, But this week I had a little bit more time to focus on some programming, which I did get back into. I did continue to do modify some of my classes and structs um, in my video game that I'm making. Um, in order to better align them. Um, so if you'll recall a couple weeks ago where we talked about um, the importance of aligning your, your structs and your classes and, you know, the bit aligning, bit fields, and all that kind of good stuff, um, and basically trying to optimize the memory footprint to not take up extra data that you don't need because you didn't align your data properly. So I pretty much went through and did some more aligning of my data. And ironically, well, the other thing, too, was I I finally got around to cutting out a bunch of stuff that I didn't need anymore. So part of the the I I talked about how I, I had this larger Pokemon class, right, and then the smaller one. And now they're basically both the same size <laughs> because I went because of a couple reasons. One, I went through the original Pokemon class and basically cut out all the stuff that I didn't actually need anymore. Um, so that took out a lot of a lot of space, um, probably close to a hundred bytes worth or something like that. Like it was a good chunk. And then the other space that I was able to gain back was from better aligning um, the the data structure. Um, so that was that was pretty big. Um, now I guess one thing I don't know if I necessarily mentioned 
back in that episode a couple weeks ago is the general rule of thumb to properly align your your data structures like your your structs and your classes and all that stuff is to put your data types in descend or I guess a descending order so like largest um, first fall then going down to the lowest and this is not a silver bullet as far as ensuring that you're going to be properly aligned and not take up any extra space but generally speaking if you're just dealing with normal standard data types like your your ints your bulls chars doubles you know all that kind of stuff generally speaking if you're just dealing with those you're going to be properly aligned Um, the only instance where you might not be properly aligned is once you start getting into non-standard data types so like using other classes or structs in your class or struct um, or using fixed sized arrays uh, because depending on how big your fixed sized array is that potentially could automatically put you off alignment so for i guess one example would be is if you created an array that was say i don't know took up 15 bytes because you you made a string that was 15 characters long um, you're not going to be properly aligned if you put that and then you know another eight byte object you're going to have you know one byte missing there Um, so there are some instances where going perfectly from largest data type down to the smallest one won't necessarily um, get you to be perfectly aligned but generally the rule of thumb is if you go in that descending order um, you'll at least be in a better situation than if you kind of just haphazardly um, threw everything in there now again you can just take all the hard work out of it hard work I guess in quotes there because it's not necessarily all that hard Um, but you know using some kind of um, attribute tag or doing a pragma and basically telling the compiler to pack the the data structure for you the only problem with that though is the compiler doesn't pack it by default because um, like I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago in that episode it's it basically aligning it the way that it does it makes it more optimized that way so you telling it to forcibly pack everything together when it otherwise wouldn't be could potentially see some degradation in performance although you will see a reduction in the the memory footprint as far as the the, um, how much memory the object would take up either on the stack or if you allocated it on the heap Um, but ideally you you would want to um, not do that if you can avoid it. Um, now, there are going to be some instances where, depending on what kind of data types you're using and the sizes, aligning it properly is really going to be really tricky to do. Um, I kind of ran into that a couple of times um, with some of the classes and stuff uh, that I was running into, uh, but it is just something to keep in mind. Um, so that was kind of what I did. Now, I guess... I I say this with some caution because there's a chance I might find something else. Um, but with, now that I think I'm basically done with optimizations, at least for the time being, until I find something else to optimize, um, I think I can finally move on to 
actually adding features now. But I guess I guess we'll see what happens. Um, so that was basically the the programming stuff. Now, here is where some some fun uh, some other fun stuff happened. So I was just minding my own business, and suddenly, out of nowhere, a new server just appeared in my my server rack. Now, I mentioned um, a few weeks ago. Uh, that I decommissioned, in quotes, decommissioned uh, a couple servers and freed up some rack space. And I guess some random server on eBay saw that there was now free rack space and was like, It's free real estate. And then just appeared to occupy said space. Now, I'm not just going to let it sit there and do nothing, right? Like, if, if, if a new server just appears in my rack, I mean, I'm going to put it to use because, I mean, if you come into my house and install yourself in my rack and do nothing, I mean, the audacity of you, server, I'm going to put you to work because unless you are, unless your name server is Xserve, you don't get to just sit in my rack and look pretty taking up precious rack space. Because seeing that I only have a 15U rack, which to some people be like, man, you can fill that much space? Um, yes. Um, but <laughs> that generally in the not I, maybe not generally but in the home labbing sphere 15u is small in some cases maybe middle of the road but regardless um rack space is kind of at a premium these days so if something is going to be in my rack it better have a purpose and be doing something unless i again unless i said it's an exserve because the Xserve pretty much just gets a free pass because, one, it just looks absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, I... I wouldn't I probably wouldn't I wouldn't spend the money on it but at the same time I would not be opposed to having an entire rack filled with Xserves and Xserve raids not doing anything but just sitting there as just a essentially like a museum piece if you want to call it that. Now, I guess on the one hand, if you did have an entire server rack full of Xserves, um, I mean, the possibilities are, are endless, right? Like, you could... I mean, you, you wouldn't need to buy a blow dryer. You wouldn't even need to blow dry your hair because you could just stand behind the back of your rack and just get absolutely blasted with a bunch of hot air. Um, it'd be great for that. Um, also, I mentioned, you know, come wintertime when things start to get cold. I mean, if you get cold, just walk behind the rack and you'll warm up. Um, and if you if you want some rather loud but nonetheless white noise i mean what better solution than to have a rack full of exserves uh because these guys they they will be loud also i guess if you don't want to hear 
anyone else talk or maybe even hear yourself think, um, that would be another excellent use um, for a full rack full of excerpts. Um, but regardless, um, any other enterprise server that isn't named Xserve that is taking up rack space uh, better be serving a purpose. So... Yeah, I put this thing to work. Now, as far as what server it was, I guess I didn't mention that. I decided, well, I guess I, since I'm, I'm trying to stick with this, um, this, uh, this tale here, this, this story of it just appearing in my rack and I didn't actually buy it, uh, <laughs> um, it is a Dell R730XD. Um, which basically the XD just referring to that the front is all drives rather than having any kind of like status information. Um, but anyway, it's it's uh, 12, form, 12 large form factor drive bays in the front or 12 three and a half inch bays on the front. And then it has two two and a half inch bays on the rear. And basically, I, as you can probably guess right now, it is going to be replacing, well, I guess at this point, it has replaced my current NAS, or I guess now former NAS, which was the Dell R510. Um, now, as far as power draw, since that was one thing, basically the main driving factor as to why I wanted to replace the R510. Not because it wasn't doing a good job, because it absolutely was. Um, the main reason I wanted to replace it was because of that power draw aspect. Now, the R730, it does draw, draw less power. Not necessarily that much less power. Like, it still draws a decent bit of power but it does draw less now here is where the copium comes in because while the amount of while it does draw less power and it's not as significant as i was kind of hoping for i also have more drives in it than i did in my r510 which those in themselves draw more power but i'm also getting more storage so here's me trying to rationalize my decision, right? Um, so that was pretty much most of my week, um, which I guess on the one hand, I had a decent amount of downtime, which I was able to get some coding done. Um, but it, that was a decent amount of my week was getting that all configured with true NAS and getting my pool, my old NAS transferred over to the new one, which actually, because I was using true NAS, it made it super simple and arguably pretty darn fast too. Because the nice thing was the R730, yeah, R730 that I got, um, it, well, I guess it technically didn't come with one, but I made sure to get a network card with 10 gig on it because of course I got to have a 10 gig connection on it um, and the nice thing was I also bought some some extra I bought some DAC cables or direct attached copper cables um, partly for additional 10 gig connectivity but also I had had a um, I had bought a 10 gig card for my R620 that I had been 
basically just putting off actually getting an extra cable for it to connect it to a 10 gig link. Um, so part of the reason I got the DAC cables was for that as well. Uh, but because I had these, you know, DAC cables, I was able to connect um, the R510 to the R730 and do a direct 10 gig connection that way um, and just copy all the data directly over. And here is where TrueNAS and ZFS are really where they really shine because the I was able to I didn't max out the 10 gig connection but that was because I was maxing out the write speed or I guess technically the read speed of the R510 um, and it's three drives um, so the way that you can the way the reason why I was saying that uh TrueNAS and ZFS are awesome for this is because there's a thing called ZFS replication. I believe that's what it's called. Um, and basically what this allows you to do is take your current um, pool with your all your data sets and everything, and assuming you have snapshots enabled, you can basically create a direct clone of your current instance on the other on a different ZFS system or TrueNAS system in this case. Um, and basically what it'll do is just copy the differences because I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast. Basically what a, a snapshot is in, in terms of ZFS is basically the difference between um, basically what the last snapshot was and the current one to j basically track changes. Um, so if anything changed, you can have that as a, as a, a reference. Um, so basically... And during the replication process, you're basically just copying over the changes, the differences, if you will. Um, and obviously, if you don't have anything on the new on the server that you're replicating to, it's obviously going to copy everything. Uh, but the reason why this is really nice is the way that this replication works is it works on the block level rather than the file level. So if you've ever transferred a lot of files at once, one thing that you'll probably be well aware of is if you have very large files, they tend to transfer pretty quickly, but if you have a lot of small files, they transfer insanely slowly. And the main reason for this is when you're doing a file level transfer, you basically have to read the contents of the file and then send it, and you're basically doing that for each each file. So it's kind of slow if you have a lot of files, and that's why larger files go quicker because you're just sending a constant stream of data rather than send, stop, send, stop, send, stop type of a thing. Um, but the reason why the block level store block level transfer is so much ease so much faster is because you're basically transferring you can imagine it as one large file you're transferring a single large block and that block could have a hundred files it could have one file I mean the, the, there could be a, a bunch of different combinations of everything in between so because you're just transferring the blocks you're not concerned at all about the actual file content so you're able to transfer at much faster rates um, so I was basically maxing out the read capacity read speed of the um, the three drives in the R510 and the reason I know that is because each of those drives I think is rated to read at I think 120 megabytes per second and the transfer speed I was seeing was kind of peaking around like 360 which would kind of fall right in line with three drives reading all at once 
Um, so that that kind of made sense. And but even still, I mean, that's a heck of a lot faster than if I just tried to copy everything or if I tried to make an archive doing like a, you know, archiving everything like I do when I copy it to my Xserve. Um, it, it was definitely a lot faster doing the, the replication that way, which was really awesome to see. Um, and then came the interesting part of all of this. So this entire time when I was transferring the files between the R510 and the R730, I was copying them with the DAC cables. And this is very important, as, as you'll soon see, because at this point when in this, this saga, the, the server was not actually in the rack yet. So it was just sitting on the floor next to the rack. And during this process, I had actually got rails for it. And the rails were supposed to be compatible according to the listing, but they actually weren't. So I had to send them back and order a new set of rails. And the new set of rails wor did actually work. So when, I f when the new rails finally came in, I got the R730 in the rack. And I thought, you know, now that everything's transferred over to it, I don't really have to worry about the R510 anymore. So I basically unplugged it and basically swapped the connections over. So the Ethernet cable that was running to the IPMI port, plugged that into the R730. The fiber connection that was running from the R510 to my switch, plugged that into the R730. And then plugged the two power cables um, for the redundant power supplies from the R510 into the R730. So now the R5, R510 is literally just completely unplugged from everything. Um, and then I decided to boot TrueNAS back up now that the R730 was ready to go. And no web interface. Proxmox servers were unable to connect to it, and I was scratching my head. Because the R510 used a f actual fiber cable. So it was connected with an actual fiber cable and two SFP plus transceivers on either end. Now, recall that when I was configuring the new NAS and transferring everything over, I was using two DAC cables or direct attached copper cables rather than that fiber cable with the two SFP Plus transceivers. Now, the DAC cables do have SFP Plus modules on them. They're just connected via two SFP Plus modules, but they're not like specific um, SFP Plus transceivers, per se, that you would have to plug a fiber connection into. It's a little bit different. The whole Once you get into like 10 gig and like fiber and even beyond 10 gig and all the various types of connectors and all that good stuff it gets it kind of gets crazy um but i guess what i'll do is i will save you all from the eh, i don't know like three-ish hours of troubleshooting and just cut to what the the issue was so i plugged the you know i plugged the cables in right and the interface said, based on TrueNAS's network configuration, that it was configured, but I wasn't able to access the web interface. So after trying to set it to DHCP and 
delete and re-add the interface? Well, actually, part of the problem was I deleted the interface thinking I would just clear it out, and it actually, like, completely deleted it, and it was, like, gone, gone. Like, it was it was just gone. Like, not in the interface, unable to actually reset it. It, it was just gone. So then I decided, okay, this is not going well at all. I was borderline ready to reinstall TrueNAS, actually, until I decided, I was like, okay, I'll do, the, I'll do a couple more tests here. I'll plug a direct Ethernet cable from my laptop to the TrueNAS server to get into the web interface, make sure I can, can do stuff. Um, and again, tried to play around with that. That wasn't working. And again, I kid you not, I literally rebooted the system two times trying to get to the initial install setup part of the, the bootloader and failed for some reason. I forget why I was trying to look at something else and wasn't paying attention. And I'm glad I did because after those two attempts, I, I decided to give one other thing a shot, which was reloading the Ethernet driver for the network card. And when I un- removed the driver from the kernel and reloaded the driver... I got a beautiful error message saying that the SFP plus or QSFP plus um, connection was unsupported. So, yes, those of you who have dealt with 10 gig connections and specifically SFP plus transceivers are probably well aware of this fact that certain manufacturers do not play nice with others when it comes to SFP plus transceivers, and some are quite picky on which transceivers they will work with. So, yeah, basically three hours gone because the new card that I have in the R730 didn't support the SFP plus transceiver that I was using. So, yeah, that was that was a good time. Um, so for whatever reason, the the Mellanox, I was using a Mellanox uh, Connect X3. Uh, I think that's what it was. Yeah, uh, that 10 gig card um, in the R510, and it was working without issue. Um, but the card that I have in the R730 is actually an OEM Dell variant from Intel, so it's an Intel card. And I guess for whatever reason, Intel wasn't playing nice with the um, the SFP Plus transceivers I had, and I guess they only wanted the Intel variety, so... Oh, well, um, but it wasn't all for loss because I eventually I ended up just swapping the um, uh, the the transceivers with the actual fiber cable and just put that into the R620 as that 10 gig connection because I know that worked and plug that in and that worked fine. Um, so, yeah, so that was a, a lot of headache trying to uh, realize that what the issue actually was so let this be a cautionary tale to those of you out there i'm definitely not the first that said this and i'm pretty sure i won't be the last person that's that said this um but when it comes to sfp plus transceivers you kind of got to do your homework because they can come back and bite you uh you got to make sure that you're 
the transceivers you're using are compatible with the hardware that you're planning to use them in. Now, some hardware vendors are more lenient than others. Um, there are some that basically take any type of transceiver you want to throw at it, and then there's others that they only want their own kind. Um, why it's not like standardized, like your standard, you know, RJ45 connector for Ethernet, I, I honestly don't know, but that's the world we live in. So once you, whenever you decide to get into any of the SFP range, SFP Plus, QSFP Plus, um, SFP28, you know, any of those higher end beyond gigabit connections where you're going to be using non-Ethernet cables uh, with your standard RJ45 jack, um, it's definitely something that you have to do your research on uh, beforehand. Um, but with that said, the one thing that was quite nice about this was I had mentioned for I don't remember when I first got into the 10 gig game. It might I think it's probably getting close to a year at this point when I first got the the 10 gig card for my NAS, I think. Um, but one thing that I had always kind of I don't know if complained about is the right word. But one thing I've I've brought up on multiple occasions is the fact that I've never really been able to fully test the capability of the 10 gig connection. But that changed because now that I had two different servers connected via a 10 gig connection and I wasn't bottlenecked by hard drive read speeds, I was able to unleash the power of 10 gig and so what i did was i decided to run iperf3 which if you're not familiar it's kind of like a, a networking benchmark to try to uh, test your networking speeds um, and see potentially see if you have any kind of um, hardware limitations um, obviously separate from like hard drives per se just kind of like between see if you maybe you have a cpu limitation or something um, potentially but regardless it's it's basically a way that you can test your network speed between two computers Anyway, I decided to give that a run on my R620 with the as the client and the the, the new NAS, the R730, uh, being the server. And my goodness, seeing that fully saturated 10 gig connection, oh man, it was glorious. Um, seeing it output in the console, you know, like nine point. 9 or 9.8 gigabits per second, um, which is basically maxed out at that point. Um, and then seeing in the TrueNAS web UI, seeing like 1.12 or something gigabits per second, or not gigabits, gigabytes per second being transferred. Ooh, it was so good. <laughs> man, I was, I was such... A, a happy man seeing those that full 10 gig saturation finally um, now the real test which is going to be interesting I haven't seen it yet is how my backups are going to work because my true my Proxmox servers back up the all the VMs to the true NAS server so now that the R620 has its main interface set to that 10 gig interface, in theory, it should be doing all the backups over that 10 gig link 
to the true NAS server, which is also a 10 gig link. So I am very curious to see how quickly um, it's able to go through the backup process. Now, I potentially might get rudely awakened in the middle of the night when it happens because um, before I was being bottlenecked by the one gig transfer speed. But even with that, I would sometimes kind of hear the server ramp up a little bit as it's, you know, fully saturating that connection and writing all the data. So I'm wondering with it now being 10 gig and potentially this, in theory, the CPU working even harder now that it's trying to fully saturate that connection because um, my R620 has basically two sets of mirrored, it's basically running in a RAID 10. It's running two drives in a RAID 10, which basically, and they're SSDs. So they shouldn't have any issue saturating a 10 gig link. So it's going to be up to the CPUs to keep up. And um, that means they're probably going to get warm trying to, you know, send all that data through. Um, so I will be interested to see if I get rudely awakened in the middle of the night as that backup job goes. Um, but it sh nonetheless, it should be interesting to see how quickly it goes, and I am definitely looking forward to that. Um, but what I'm not looking forward to is, and what you might not look be looking forward to, is this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast coming to an end, um, which I have to say... Uh, I don't think I've had a transition to the end of an episode that smooth in months. Like, usually my transitions are pretty much abrupt because I can't figure a way to smoothly end it. But this time, I did. But of course, before we end, we must get back to our trivia question for the week. And that is... What type of cyber attack involves flooding a network or website with excessive traffic to disrupt its normal functioning? Now, if you said a denial of service or a distributed denial of service attack, congratulations, you are correct. Um, now, the reason I accepted both of those is because the question, depending on how you interpreted it, Either one could have sufficed um, because distributed denial of service attack is basically just, you know, coming from essentially like a botnet all over the place attacking versus a d denial of service attack isn't necessarily included in that. It could all be coming from one place. So there is they both basically could, in this case, achieve the same thing. So if you said either one, congratulations, you got this week's trivia question correct. And that is going to do it so if you enjoyed you know you know what to do like share subscribe share with friends and family members if you have any questions um i love hearing from you guys so reach out uh with any questions or comments you have about this episode or topics for future episodes at contact at darkassassinsinc.com you can always click the link down in the show notes below for that and that's going to do it for me in this episode of the dark assassins podcast until next time my fellow assassins remember bull nothing equals true if action not equal to null return true i'll see you next time on the dark assassins podcast